Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. It's likely not a coincidence that the year our lives were disrupted by a pandemic, firearm purchases reached record highs. 15 million guns were purchased nationally between January and July, and that's a 91% increase from the same period the prior year, according to data gathered by the FBI based on background checks. The same data reveals that here in Connecticut, there was a 60% increase in 2020 from the prior year. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. The largest increase in gun purchases was by African-Americans. And later in the show, we'll dig deeper into those numbers. We'll talk to a legal scholar who argues that the Second Amendment doesn't equally protect people of color. But first, we wanted to explore gun culture here in Connecticut. Will Hampton joins us now. He's the chapter president of the Black Gun Owners Association in Norwalk and owner of the Gullah Warriors Gun Club in Lower Fairfield County. Will, welcome to Disrupted. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Now, you've had your pistol permit for over 20 years. Talk to us about what made you decide that you wanted to take that step to become a licensed gun owner. Um, initially, uh, it was an interest in the shooting sports, which is the fun, uh, not so uh, self-defense centered side of it. But um, also, um, I, you know, prior to graduating high school, buried two best friends to uh, gun violence and also um, had a gun, you know, drawn on me, my brother and uh, my two cousins once while we were just minding our own business. So, you know, coming to the conclusion early that we don't live in a perfect world. There's a lot of discussion in the U.S. about gun culture. And for me, as someone who grew up in the South, what gun culture looks like there is quite different from what we may encounter in Connecticut. And you just talked about the enthusiasm and gun sports, but also safety and protection. So what would you say gun culture looks like here in Connecticut? Gun culture in Connecticut, um, you know, we can't uh, negate or neglect, you know, what uh, violence takes place in, in certain cities. You know, that's that's an issue um, and it's sad, um, but it definitely correlates with um, lack of jobs and opportunity. You know, it's no coincidence that, you know, uh, some of the highest crime ridden areas are also those who, with the uh, poorest education, um, yeah, they don't make as much, you know, the median uh, home income is the lowest in the country. And uh, for places like Detroit, you know, a definite spike in crime the minute uh, jobs left. Uh, so that's definitely one side of it. But uh, gun culture is, um, you know, fun. It's target practice. It's, uh, you know, competing, um, you know, learning about safety, learning about different platforms. Most people start with a pistol then they graduate to either a, a rifle or a shotgun. Um, just at the, uh, we have a Sunday gun day every second Tuesday, uh, second Sunday of uh, each month. And um, two of the sisters fell in love with a shotgun and a 12 gauge shotgun at that. Because a lot of times there's, uh, there used to be a lot of negative um, connotations with what caliber 
a woman can or can't handle. And I don't really buy that. You know, I was raised by my mom and my grandmother and they're tough. So I didn't buy that at all. So, um, you know, they fell in love with the 12 gauge shotgun and it's all just practice, safe technique and, uh, and form. So they're ready to skip pistols and just go, you know, the pros now in their own head. But um, we, we have a lot of fun. You know, we, we talk about, especially a lot of people now that are coming to me because I'm also a firearms instructor um, about race and, and the issues that have uh, been revealed. You know, I don't think it's anything new, but that have been revealed in this last year. So I want to talk about these sort of new trends that we're seeing over the, the past year. But I want to go back to something that you just said about being an instructor. Why the move from being an enthusiast to now owning a gun club, being an instructor, and opening up membership to people who want to do this safely, but also want to be a part of a club? Um, I thought the concept of a club was always cool. I just never looked at it as being something uh, locally that, you know, at first I was looking to join, but I didn't see, you know, when I first had these thoughts, there were no uh, NAGA or BGOA. So it was just kind of like getting together with fellas that um, also have their permit. But, um, you know, with me really taking that step was in direct response to uh, the Ahmaud Arbery situation, which... Um, involved retired police but um you know they were protected literally by the local um prosecutors and you know just that that you know the way it was handled was as if we were still living in the 30s and you know it was then where i came to the conclusion that you know certain aspects of this government society does not have my best interests um at hand even when the right thing is done you know same with philando castile so um i knew how many people I can count on one hand who had the permit and I know how many conversations I've had uh, with our people in regards to their fears, concerns and drawing more attention and things like that. So I really wanted to um, walk the walk and uh, dispel some of some of the myths and the Ahmaud Arbery situation, him running and minding his business, you know, by day I'm a personal trainer. So that could have easily been me. And, you know, that that resonated with me big time. So, you know, I figure instead of um, just, you know, go on rants online, I'd rather do something, at least on a local level. So NAGA, for our listeners, is the National African-American Gun Association. And when most people in this country think about a gun rights organization or a group of people who want to use that, they think of the NRA, the National Rifle Association. But you're mentioning these two national organizations that you've started, local chapters, who address both the social context for African-Americans, but also that sort of camaraderie of understanding how these things overlap. Why was it important for you to start a chapter that focuses on African-American gun owners? Because it's a different experience for us in this country. Um, you know, uh, our a lot of our plight, um, things have changed a lot based off of you know, us taking up arms. It was one of the only protections, forms of protection against the Klan. Um, you know, Rosa Parks uh, chased the Klan away from her porch, you know, a, a good amount of times. We never hear that part. Um, as uh, we discussed before, um, when Black men got the right to vote, it was Black women surrounding those voting boats with guns and firearms to fight the Klan off. You know, a lot of the... Uh, uh, legitimate legislation that came following like the Black Panthers and a lot of their stances, 
you know, came based off of a fear that needed to be created, unfortunately, for us to get the rights and respect that, you know, we're still kind of fighting to have. So locally, it's, it's just a continuation of, of that discussion, uh, that, that fight, and making sure that, you know, we take our safety into our own, own hands, whether it's on an individual level or as a collective. We saw a 60% increase in Black gun ownership in 2020. And some of that is driven by the things that you discussed, the historic nature in which many Black communities felt unprotected or unsafe, but also the changing disruptions of this pandemic that made some people say, I need to do something differently. Are you seeing that same sort of trend in Connecticut, whether it's membership in your organization or just the conversations you have with people who want to pursue their permits? Definitely. Um, A lot of the membership is driven based off of um, the revelations of this previous uh, administration and and, uh, year. Um, And then as far as Connecticut, um, I, I, I would assume because there are definitely other chapters that are popping up. Hartford area has one. So I would assume it's pretty parallel going across the board and, you know, somewhat of a, of a, an awakening taking place uh, for the most part with, with our people and gun rights and protection and just, you know, it's your sovereign right to protect your life. And that, that's just, you know, where it's, you know, starts and stops for me. One of the challenges that often emerges when groups and communities mobilize to protect themselves is that it can also spark fear amongst other people. You know, there's this amazing movie out called Judas and the Black Messiah, which focuses on Chairman Fred Hampton, but also the broader response to what happened when Blacks as individuals, but also as groups and communities started arming themselves and protecting themselves. Do you have a concern that this increase in gun ownership may spark that kind of retaliation? Or are you more focused on how communities come together to protect and affirm themselves? More concerned with how communities come together to protect themselves. I really don't care about anyone else's fear because we've exhausted all means of, you know, just gradually assimilating into, you know, um, just Western society, you know, um, and like I said, based off of, you know, my upbringing is the church and, you know, it's always been just a passive turn the other cheek type of um, approach. So, it, you know, to even have this conversation in 2020 in itself is telling. So, yeah, I could really care less about anyone else's fear because those who know me, as I said, I'm a personal trainer. Most of my clients are white. You know, they they know well, you know, and they we have the same conversations. I've actually had more conversations with um, my white friends asking, you know, honest questions about race that otherwise would have been either woke, uh, work inappropriate or they just didn't think about because it didn't affect them. And I don't blame them for that. You know, why would they? You know, we live in, you know, a, a, a white man's world, basically. And, you know, it's 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 truly about us, you know, with love for everyone. But it's truly about us right about now. One of the benefits of of many that have come out of these disruptions during these pandemics is that, as you say, we're having more conversations, not just conversations with people of similar backgrounds, but across the lines that traditionally divide us. What's the conversation that you have with young people 
who see the spikes in violence happening in Connecticut and across the country, who shoulder this fear that their very body or their very presence may be viewed negatively or that they fear for their lives. What's the conversation that we should be having with young people around guns and gun safety? Um, First of all, I think the, the conversation should be centered around their most powerful weapon, and that's their mind. You know, and knowing that, um, whether from a self-defense standpoint, walking away is always the first and most important option. But, um, you know, when people, we love spewing how our ancestors died for this, died for that. No, they died for you to be able to walk this planet fearless. So, you know, doing what we have to do to protect ourselves, to um, start, you know, investing in our own and things like that needs to be, you know, the main focus, you know, um, violence on, on the gun violence side that isn't going anywhere anytime soon. But us, you know, coming together as a community, creating our own businesses, jobs, corporations, and then employing those same very um, uh, individuals has the huge, a huge potential to change, you know, our realities as, as we know it. Um, there's a huge buy back the block movement going on in a lot of different cities. And I'm loving it because, you know, it's kind of offsetting the gentrification that is definitely taking place in like my city, uh, Norwalk and a lot of surrounding cities. Will Hampton is president of the Black Gunner, Gun Owners Association of Norwalk and owner of the Gullah Warriors Gun Club in Lower Fairfield County. Will, thank you so much for joining us today. No, no problem at all. Thank you. Coming up, we'll dig deeper into some of the statistics we heard earlier in the show, and we'll hear how the Second Amendment often fails to protect African Americans. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about the disruptions around gun ownership last year. It's typical for gun purchases to increase in the winter months and during an election year, but 2020 piled on. Lakidra Chavez is a reporter at The Trace. It's a news organization reporting on the gun violence crisis in this country. She told me that 2020 was a record year with some 22 million legal gun purchases. Asked her to talk more about the trend she's seeing. 2020 wasn't just an election year. It was an unprecedented year of um, just so many things that people did not anticipate, like the pandemic. And with that, you have increased stress, increased anxiety. um, And so you just have this boom in uh, legal gun purchases as well. And separate from that, we also have um, an increase in uh, violent crime. And, um, you know, I think it was just a a mix where people felt like their safety uh, was really um, compromised. You know, there was so much job insecurity, housing insecurity caused by the, by the pandemic. And it's really too early to tell if any of this is related to legal gun sales and the violence that we were seeing. Um, but both things, you know, did occur in a way that I think shocked reporters covering this issue, as well as researchers and, and policymakers. There's a lot of fear and a lot of vulnerability for a number of reasons being felt widely across the country. 
But there's also particular dynamics happening for communities of color related to the events of last year and even now in 2021. What are the trends that you are seeing amongst communities of color in relation to these issues that you report on? Yeah, so when we talk about gun sales increasing across the country, uh, which is what happened during the pandemic, no state was left untouched um, by these spikes in gun purchases. Um, But I think oftentimes it is framed through a lens of uh, white men living in rural areas uh, purchasing guns. Um, But that is not always the case. And so what we saw in 2020 was really an uptick in people from different communities of color um, wanting to be gun owners. And, um, you know, in their words, they really wanted to exercise, you know, their Second Amendment rights. And so uh, we saw, uh, you know, people in uh, affiliated groups, so groups dedicated to Black gun ownership, uh, Latinx gun ownership, um, and uh, in some Asian communities as well, uh, people wanting to um, buy guns. We've also seen an increase in hate crimes and biased crimes targeting particular communities. And I'm thinking here of the spike in anti-Asian sentiment and violence. Do you think that that social context is driving some of this or is it more about affirming one's citizenship and access to those rights and protections? Yeah, I mean, I think both of those things are intertwined. Um, And uh, for the increase in hate crimes against um, Asian communities in this country, what one of my colleagues reported early on in the pandemic is that uh, in certain parts of the country, uh, gun store owners uh, were really seeing an increase in um, people from Asian communities wanting to, to purchase guns, and they were very scared. And when you look at the context in which this was happening, you had a presidential administration um, that really um, spewed very you know, racist things about um, the coronavirus and its origins. And uh, so... Um, it's not surprising in some ways that we're seeing this this increase. Um, And the number one reason that people uh, want guns in this country is for self-protection. And that has been um, the most common reason for decades now. It's interesting how racial and ethnic identity shapes access, but also shapes purpose. I think that we have a racialized notion of, you know, white men perhaps engaging in this for sport and for enthusiasm and for communities of color. It's more about protection. But much of your reporting also focuses on the negative outcomes of this, the spikes, as you say, and violence but also the dramatic increase in people who are dying by suicide as the result of guns and gun violence. What are you seeing in your reporting? Yeah, so um, it's really hard to connect um, legal gun purchases that happened last year to the violence that we're seeing. Um, So in some ways it's separate uh, because guns that might be used in a crime later on tend to be, at least in Chicago, I'll say, uh, tend to be about a a decade old. Um, But what we also saw this year in Chicago was a, um, you know, spike in um, suicides among people, among Black people in the Chicago area. And that is also something that people weren't anticipating. Um, And when we look at um, just suicides in general across the country, um, uh, the common method used is often with a firearm. Um, And that is because firearms are just so 
deadly. It's very, very hard to come back from a firearm injury. Um, so it, it plays a huge role in, in suicides as well. Let's talk a little bit about Chicago because Chicago often comes up in national conversation, but it comes up as this throwaway example of look at Chicago. And it doesn't really address the people of Chicago and the conditions that people are navigating. What's happening in the city that you think, or, or from your research and your, your journalism, what's happening in Chicago that may be leading to some of these spikes? Yeah, so when we talk about things like gun violence or, or, or mental health, um, I think it's really important to talk about all of the different issues that make um, violence more likely. So things like poverty, things like, um, you know, uh, unstable housing situations, um, job attainment, wealth attainment, um, when you don't have the resources um, to make all of that possible, um, it puts you at a higher risk of uh, not only victimization, but perhaps being a perpetrator of violence as well. So when we talk about Chicago, it's important to remember that this is one of the most segregated cities in the country. When we see things like gun violence and uh, mental health crises that are happening, um, you know, we see it in the same areas of the city over and over again. And then you throw in things like uh, the pandemic, um, the first wave of the coronavirus really devastated communities that were already um, highly affected uh, by, by violence. So what's being done? What's being done to address this in Chicago or perhaps in other parts of the country that are grappling with these same challenges? Yeah, so one of the, the interesting things that um, I noted last year was just the increase in reliance uh, on street outreach workers. This, this is sometimes referred to as violence interruption. Um, so you really had cities relying on people who are considered sort of credible messengers uh, in their community. Uh, these are people that, um, at least in Chicago, they often grew up in the neighborhoods that they now work in. Um, sometimes they uh, have, have had very close experiences with gun violence, either as a victim and or as a or perpetrator. Um, and uh, they are now trying to make a difference um, in the communities that they serve. And so what you saw um, during the pandemic is that they took on things like COVID outreach, letting people know that this um, virus was real um, and how people could protect themselves, um, as well as uh, lately, um, training outreach workers um, to spot signs of domestic violence as well, in addition to all of the other work that, that um, they've been doing. And um, I will say that street outreach, especially in Chicago, is not new. It's been around for several decades, but um, during the pandemic, you just really saw a, a reliance on, uh, you know, from government institutions um, on these uh, workers because they were the closest to the ground and they really could say, you know, what was happening, what people knew and what resources that they, that they needed. There's been a lot of concern about, not just in Chicago, but across the country about young people not being in schools because it often means that they are isolated at home, which can increase the potential for domestic violence or neglect, but also the level of engagement that young people need in order to be in more positive situations. How are these organizations, whether it's the street outreach workers or other community organizations, how are they connecting with young people? 
Yeah, so I think um, in Chicago, there are lots of groups that are working with children, either, you know, um, young children and teenagers are being referred to their organizations, or they're, you know, out in the community trying to meet them and offer them things um, like help with school, mental health resources, um, and, uh, you know, access to food and things like that. And what I'm hearing from uh, people who do this work every day is that really it's not just, you know, addressing the child's needs, but trying to figure out how to help the family as a whole. Um, you know, as you mentioned, there is just so much stress happening. And sometimes that trickles down to children as well. As well. So really trying to address the family unit, everyone living in that house um, to, you know, in some ways directly uh, assist the child as well. There's often a lot of attention paid when we have mass acts of gun violence. And in particular, I'm thinking of school-based shootings. And one of the benefits of this pandemic is that that has not happened at the level that we have seen in years past. But it also means that, as you mentioned in your work, we need to start addressing the why and the context. Lakidra Chavis is a reporter at The Trace. It's a news organization that reports on America's gun violence crisis. Lakidra, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. If you or loved one is struggling with suicidal thoughts, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. Coming up, The right to bear arms written in our Constitution is not the reality on the ground for many African Americans. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. 2020 was a record year for gun purchases, but it was also a year of racial reckoning. So many names have become all too familiar, like Philando Castile, Jamel Robinson, and Amancic Bradford. They were all Black men carrying firearms legally, but still shot and killed by police. Our next guest co-wrote an article for the Chicago Sun-Times called How Second Amendment Gun Rights Fall Short for African Americans. Margaret Etienne is a law professor, associate dean, and the Nancy Snowden Research Scholar at the University of Illinois College of Law. I asked her to talk about the history of the Second Amendment and why understanding that history is critical to making sense of this current moment. So the Second Amendment, obviously, it's part of the Bill of Rights, and it guarantees um, and, and I should say there's a lot of debate about this, right? There's a, it's a controversial amendment, um, but it essentially guarantees the right to bear arms. Um, and there's questions about who gets to bear arms and is it an absolute right? Um, can there be limitations placed on that right? There's a lot of, of language or, or constraints that people talk about that don't necessarily appear in the language of the amendment but uh, have come about over time through various case law um, and legislation. But the essential idea is, and it came from, you know, the the conflicts that the colonists had with the crown, with the British crown, and the idea that individuals and communities, states, colonies, should be able to defend themselves if needed. 
And there's a very long history to the idea of gun ownership that well precedes the Second Amendment itself. The language of the Second Amendment is incredibly brief. And yet, as you mentioned, has sparked really decades and centuries of debate and conflict about what it means. You recently had a commentary in the Chicago Sun-Times where you argue that the Second Amendment does not protect all gun owners and in particular does not fully protect black gun owners. Some of us are familiar with the the murder of Philando Castile in Minneapolis or the murder of John Crawford in Ohio, who had picked up a pellet gun in the store and then was shot and killed by an officer. Those are the contemporary examples where people have argued the Second Amendment does not protect black gun owners. But you say that there's a much longer history of having that unequal protection. What's that bigger picture and that historical background that we need to know? Okay, that, that's such a great question. Um, I think I should start with a clarification. And, and this is part of the, the point that I tried to make in, in the article that you mentioned in the commentary, that we as, as lawyers, as law scholars often notice that there's a difference between the law as it's written and the law as it's practiced, how we, we think about it, the law on the ground. And so it's, it's great to start with the text of the second amendment and of course, the text itself says nothing about restricting um, the rights of African-Americans or any particular group from owning guns. But we can see that the way in which the, um, that right is protected or not protected says something about whether we recognize a Second Amendment right for all people. And it's clear in the examples that you raised, um, the more recent examples, but also historically, that Blacks have not traditionally had their Second Amendment rights protected. So they exist on the books, of course, but they're not necessarily um, recognized. And so historically, from the very beginning of this, the, the, the foundation of this country, as I, as I was alluding to before, um, the rights of gun owners have been quite racialized. In fact, in any colony, um, typically the idea that the idea that that guns were rampant and everyone owned a gun at the founding of this country is not accurate. In colonies in general, the crown, in this case, that the colonizer, the British crown, has reason to want to limit gun ownership within the colonies. In the United States, or at least in America, um, at the time, colonists who came in appealed to the British crown, to the, to the government there saying, you know, we actually need guns. We need guns because we have different, different constraints, different issues than other colonies might have. We've got the indigenous population. We've got the black population. We've got indentured servant, the poor white population. And in order to maintain some control, we're gonna need to be able to bear arms not necessarily to fight against the crown, right? But to fight against what we're seeing here where we are. And so from the very beginning, um, the idea that some people could own guns in the colonies and some people could not own guns was, was very clear. Um, going, moving forward, there's still a long history, particularly dealing with African-Americans 
um, enslaved peoples in particular, who were of course restricted from owning firearms um, and their rights were limited in, in many ways that go far beyond the second amendment as we know. Um, but that started to change over time. Um, particularly we see a shift in the civil, civil war where for the first time, uh, Blacks were fighting for the Union, for the United States Army, and were armed and allowed to be armed. And that site, I imagine, was one of the scariest sites that a sort of Southern slave owner would, would, would encounter, right? As a Black person with a gun um, and, and slave rebellions and um, history following that bore that out. But when Black people, when African-Americans at that point started to own guns, they thought about liberating themselves first. And then later, post-Civil War, a lot of it was about self-protection, about self-defense in the face of, of tremendous um, terrorism and violence that followed the Civil War. I find that history both fascinating and infuriating. The notion that the colonists said they needed guns to protect from these external threats posed by indigenous nations and from blacks who were in the colonies at the time and that there gradually becomes greater acceptance once those soldiers are taking up arms in order to preserve the Confederacy and to protect that interest. But that difference between who poses a threat versus who deserves to be protected, as you said, persist. And one of the things that also appears in your work is this notion of how people respond to movements and respond to demands for freedom and for access. How then have has the Second Amendment been used to stop movements or to deter people? You mentioned some of the, the slave rebellions. How has the Second Amendment been used in that context? So at that point, um, during, the, the, during the, the time of slavery, there wasn't really a case made that Blacks had a right to own guns or that, they, or that the Second Amendment applied to them. So this was not necessarily a shift between the law on the books and the law in practice. What we saw was that shift started to occur when in fact it became clear that blacks would be recognized as full Americans with all of the rights um, uh, uh, enumerated in the Bill of Rights, that there was a, a, a strong disconnect between that historical experience of not seeing Black people own guns lawfully to seeing Black people own guns lawfully. And yet um, th this, this almost uh, uh, national memory of the fact that if a Black person is owning a gun, there's something, there's something gone amiss, there's something wrong with that. And that that was a violent act in and of itself, right? The possession of a firearm um, is, is viewed in Black hands as in and of itself a threat. Whereas we don't necessarily see that being the case um, when a white American, for example, is owning a gun. Now, I'll say that the, the, the and, and as we know, the idea of gun ownership and the restrictions that ought to be placed or not on gun ownership is a controversial subject. So of course there are many people who see anyone with a gun 
as a threat. Um, and I, I don't want to ignore that, that reality. But among those who petition for and champion the rights of gun ownership, oftentimes Black folks are left outside of those appeals and those petitions. So we even see, for example, uh, uh, when we think about um, the NRA and the, their very strong advocacy for gun rights across, a, a, you know, historically, and the sense that oftentimes African-Americans have felt very excluded. Those who want to own guns lawfully have felt very excluded from that movement um, and have started gun ownership associations of their own. In fact, in the last year or two, um, what we're seeing is a massive increase in membership in the National, so National African-American um, Gun Association um, it's a national organization with chapters all across, all across the country. And what we're seeing is increases 30, 50, 70% increased membership in those organizations. And in part because um, though many of these people don't feel welcome, haven't felt welcome in the NRA and that movement. And so we see movements going in various directions, pro-gun ownership movements that are fractured in some sense, um, as well as um, anti-gun ownership movements. Um, and this, this weird gray space in between where some people can own guns and some people cannot own guns. The beauty of the Constitution is that it is a living document, that there's always this debate over interpretation but there's also, as you say, this difference between rights on the books and rights in person. And often the person who gets to decide those rights on the ground has a sense of power that others may not. And we add the layer of race that really makes a difference. Professor, a lot of people talked about the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol and how differently that may have looked if the people engaging in those treasonous acts had been African-Americans and would the response be different? So I'll ask that question to you. Do you think that the response would have been different or do you think that the question that we should be asking is more about why certain people are allowed to present in that way and others are not? Um, well, obviously we're, we're, we're engaging in a bit of speculation, um, but if asked to go down that route, I have no doubt that the response would have been quite different had the, 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 the group um, of, of insurrectionists been largely people of color, black or otherwise. Um, I think the response would have been different. I think it never would have gotten as far as it did. Um, and I think the response, the reaction post uh, January 6th would have been quite different as well in terms of the, uh, not only the, the prosecution, the arrests, but the public response and outcry would have been far, far greater. And we would have seen, um, you know, the, 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 the impact of that for many, many years to come. Um, and, and we can see that playing out. So even um, in some of the examples that, that you mentioned, um, 
you know, we have examples of African-American, mostly men in these cases, owning firearms, licensed, licensed gun owners, um, who, when seen in public, for example, in a mall or in a nightclub, um, acting in a sense as heroes in those in instances, um, protecting other members of the public, as soon as they are viewed with a firearm, the assumption is that they are um, the villains, they're the bad guys, they're up to no good, and that they must be stopped. And not necessarily stopped and questioned, right, in these cases, but stopped and, 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 and killed, assassinated in a sense. So I think that we have some evidence, in fact, that, that folks are being treated very differently. And you're absolutely right to point out that in that moment, right, when we're not in a court of law, but on the streets and the law is being, um, is, is being applied, that there is a, a big differential of power and those with the power are not viewing the Second Amendment right um, in a non-racialized non manner. There's a lot of public frustration about that disconnect to think about the fact that we've been grappling with these dual pandemics, one of COVID-19, but also the racial tensions that have often resulted in deaths and violence toward African-Americans. And one of the examples that you mention in your work is the response to Kyle Rittenhouse, this you know young white man who shot and killed people. And the response has been very different as opposed to, as you talk about, Amantic Bradford, who was really a hero trying to protect other people, but was shot and killed because the reaction to his presence was very different. How do we grapple with that tension, not just in, in public conversation, but in working to ensure that the law protects everyone equally and doesn't prioritize people based on their perceived racial identity or worth? So there is a lot of work to be done in this area, um, and it needs to happen on many different fronts. So, of course, law enforcement is part of, you know, is, is often the first respondents in, in something like this, and they need to be trained. It's not clear that training alone will do it. In fact, many, you know, think about training as a panacea that, that doesn't really solve any problems. Um, but that would be one step. Um, the visibility of black gun ownership. And I mentioned that there are, there's a, a rise in these organizations um, for black gun owners, but the visibility of licensed legal black on, on, on gun ownership has to be part of the solution as well. So that the assumption is not, you know, we see a lot of images um, in the media, on television of, of, you know, folks who are, owning guns for violent purposes, we don't really see, unless they're law enforcement officers, we don't really see the other side of that. And that's not just true about African-Americans, it's true about women as well. Um, there's an incredible rise in, in female gun ownership. That's not an image that we see. So we need to democratize our view of who the gun owner is. Um, so that would be one step. How we do that, again, that's a multi-pronged, um, you know, we need to have a multi-pronged approach to that. Um, 
you know, but the problem that we're talking about has been a problem for a very long time. And I always often think about a quote, you know, by James Baldwin, um, you know, and he said, and this is, you know, quote, he says, when, when a white person picks up a gun and says, give me liberty or give me death, the entire white world applauds. When a black man says exactly the same thing, word for word, he is judged a criminal and treated like one. And that quote, you know, and it's a bit of a paraphrase, but that quote um, was true then and it's true now. And it's hard to imagine a world sometime soon where that's going to be different. Some of that has to do with this view of who is an American, right? And so we reserve the most precious of um, rights for those we deem to be Americans in a sense. And um, African-Americans, um, unfortunately, are still viewed as second-class citizens in some respects. There's been tremendous progress, of course, but in some respects, and the Second Amendment, I think, is one of those ways, and that's unfortunate. And we've seen, we haven't seen the, the, the growth or the change um, in the Second Amendment and how we view that as we have seen in the 14th Amendment, in the First Amendment, you know, and the, the other rights that we hold dear. You know, I've been listening to the congressional hearings about the events of January 6th. And what was interesting to me was that the House Sergeant of Arms explained that he didn't see any difference in the response to protesters over the summer who were part of the movement for Black Lives and the insurrectionists who were there in January. And part of his argument was that, you know, we prepared the same, we approached the same, we shouldn't make this an issue of difference. When we think about the role of the courts in not just protecting the Second Amendment or interpreting the Second Amendment, but really affirming the meaning of citizenship in the United States, is there a particular issue or set of issues related to the Second Amendment that you think we should expect the court to take up or that you would want the court to address? Hmm, That's a very interesting question. You know, I would say that the concept of the Second Amendment um, and, and thinking about really gun control laws, right? Because that's where much of the debate is, is what is an appropriate level of gun control that violates or doesn't violate the, the, the Second Amendment, um, either as written or as applied. And the, the, I would think that the courts can think about whether or not gun control, the history itself of gun control laws is, is part, should be part of the way that we view the amendment and what those gun control laws should contain. Um, as I mentioned, gun control laws preceded the, the um, framing. You know, we had gun control laws before we had a constitution. And so to think about this, this notion um, that somehow the Second Amendment should be uh, protected, even from you know any regulation or from the the you know, is 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 something that I think courts can look at. And to add to that, the equalization of the application of the amendment um, is really you know thinking about how um, 
equal protection or, you know, might apply, for example, to the Second Amendment in terms of how states and how law enforcement agencies and how other governmental bodies conceive of the Second Amendment um, and go beyond the text to see how they actually enforce it and how it's applied, how they enforce the gun control laws and how those are applied would be things that, that can be done. Professor Margaret Etienne is professor at the University of Illinois College of Law. She's also associate dean and the Nancy Snowden Research Scholar. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been my pleasure. Thank you very much. We'll have a link of Professor Etienne's article, How Second Amendment Gun Rights Fall Short for African Americans, posted on our website. It's ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Disrupted is produced by Katie Tularski, Daniela Luna, and Anna Elizabeth. Our intern is Shekinah Collier. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Thank you.